0: Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent Radio Show. I'm Matt Zemeck with my co-host, Sake Ali. And uh, we are in the middle of the autumn portion of the tennis season. It's a part of the tennis season when a lot of players are tired, some are injured. It's been a long year, so you're seeing some uh, new faces or perhaps in some cases uh, players who played really well at the early part of the year but then struggled in the summer. Now they're coming back. Um, one such story was Caroline Wozniacki winning the premier mandatory WTA tournament in Beijing as just one example uh the men uh, also finished up their tournament in Beijing as well as a companion tournament in Tokyo so to help make sense of this we're we're on for this week and so Sakib uh from the assortment of stories let's start with the ATP tour uh, in Beijing and Tokyo, both 500-point tournaments in those separate cities. Uh, we had Daniel Medvedev beating Kay Nishikori in the Tokyo final, and we had Nicolas Basilashvili beating Juan Martin Del Potro in the Beijing final. And, of course, there were other matches and other news stories which led up to those finals. So when uh, overviewing those two ATP tournaments, what are the details that stood out to you the most?
1: I think, Matt, you put it, uh, really well. I couldn't have said it myself. Uh, the tennis season has its, you know, phases, uh, where the following from the fans and media is that it, at its peak, uh, from, say, French Open to U.S. Open because three majors are paid within a span of, say, less than three months. And then, uh, you know, a lot of fans tune out, but the season is pretty long. It goes on till the first week of November. And Asian Swing is a very important place for a lot of players to gain ranking points, prize money, and the season's still going on, and a lot of people, especially in America, it doesn't make sense why play after the last major. But we are, you know, here for a reason, and the season, uh, this tennis season has been there for a while, and Asia has a, uh, you know, good, uh, good standing now, leading up to the fall European, uh, season, and, uh, like you mentioned, the two winners from last week on the men's side, uh, Daniel Medvedev and, uh, Nikolas Bazilashvili, are not necessarily household names, but if you watch a lot of tennis on Tennis Channel or follow the scores, these guys are, you know, it's not a surprise that these uh, gentlemen were at the winner's circle and that too against two of the most decorated players of recent times, and Ken Ishikori and Juan Martin Del Potro. So I'll start with Medvedev. He's part of the Russian brigade, uh, along with the Karen Hachinov and Andrey Rublev. And uh, if you look at all the... Uh, younger guys uh I guess uh you know younger than Nick Kyrgios, who's kind of, who's twenty three and is uh definitely you can remove him from uh uh the you know the Sasha Zverev wherever the young generation, but these three Russians, i think uh correct me if i am wrong if uh you know five six years from now team competition which has been the theme of tennis uh Russia has the best stock right now, and i 'll say buy on all three uh i'm not saying all three will win majors, but I definitely think all three have taken some uh, monumental steps in the last two years with Hashinov winning, uh, I believe, Shangdu in China a couple of years ago. Uh, Rublev making his mark last year by reaching the U.S. Open quarterfinals. Medvedev, again, uh, you know, has played in patches, but uh, this year, you know, he's already won, I think, more than 30-something matches, and uh, winning over Nishikori in Japan is is a tough task. So Medvedev is uh, kind of a very crafty player. And uh, you can probably add more to him on, on on his skills. His game is not flashy like uh, Hachov or even Rublev, but he's a crafty player. He's a big serve. He competes well. Clay is not his best surface, if I'm not mistaken. But he's done enough to win uh, more than say 30, 35 matches, and that that speaks a lot. And not uh, what what is it? Two days ago, he played a very uh, tough match against Roger Federer in Shanghai, and uh, came on the you know wrong end of it. So I think he, he's one guy we definitely have to keep an eye on. Uh, he was on my, you know, place to look out for when we did the podcast in 2017 beginning, and uh, he made he broke into the top hundred. And now I think uh, if he, he if he ends on a high say in, in the European part of the season, which is I think his native I think uh, Moscow has a tournament, and then uh, there's a 500 tournament week in Basel and uh, Vienna. If he say gets another say six seven hundred points, he's uh, I haven't even looked at the rankings, Matt, but I think he'll be top 16th
0: seed for Australia, and that's, that's huge. I didn't see that coming. Did you? No, not at all. And uh, there, there's no doubt that, that he's making noticeable forward progress. Uh, in uh, assessing his match against Federer uh, in Shanghai, which was in the middle of the week, and he lost 6-4 in the third, uh, his racket skills seem to be getting better. He seems to have a s- softer hands and a, and a better feel for his shots, and uh, I've long perceived Medvedev to be pretty monochromatic in his strokes. Um, as you accurately noted, it's not a flashy game. It's a very meat-and-potatoes game, very uh, functional. Um, but I think that he's learning at least a little bit in terms of how to shape and manipulate the ball a little bit more, and that kind of texture is something that he will need to continue to develop uh in the coming years but he's showing signs in this uh autumnal season uh, of being able to do just that and to address your point Sakev, about the russian brigade uh the uh triumvirate of rublev medvedev and khachanov um you know they're all very young um you know medvedev and khachanov are 22 and and rublev is a little younger than that so they all have time on their side uh, that's the main thing to note with them that uh, if they if their games aren't fully developed, they have time to, you know, make those forward steps. Uh, you know, to me, and I mean, it, it varies for every player. And, and we've certainly seen a lot of uh, older pros, you know, suddenly uh, awaken at age 28 or 29. It's, I call it the Wabrinka effect, you know, inspired by Stan Wawrinka and what he did in 2014, his massive breakthrough season. At age 28 and 29, uh, you know, some players find a long time to break through. But for me, I think the, the, the key period of evolution, it's not your late teens or very early twenties. It's that period that Medvedev and Hashinoff are beginning to enter 22 to 25. You know, that is a time when Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic began to figure it all out. And it, it's a time when you've gained enough experience on tour. Uh, but it's not late in your career. It's still on, still on the early side. And so you're in a sweet spot where, you know, you have your supreme burst in athleticism before the effects of age and accumulated matches and injuries wear you down. Uh, but you have some experience compared to uh, a late teenager or a 20 year old. So these next two to three years for Medvedev and Hatchinoff are going to be hugely important, but there are some Definite encouraging signs as two thousand and eighteen winds down, so Can I ask um you
1: something uh, Matt?
0: sure uh, sure so
1: of these three Russians, I know we are not into the projecting business, but you know you follow enough sport, you follow the n b a you follow college football, so of the three of these three I know like you just said, they're still very young and they're developing into they're blossoming into something you know what what we all expect so who who has the brightest uh stock of, of this of these three young Russians right now, if you were to
0: you know, take stock of this careers at this point during the week of Shanghai. Well, I think that uh Hatchinov, to me, that and this is obviously just a personal observation, but Hatchinoff to me has the biggest game. You know, the way he played Rafael Nadal at the US Open, that was an eye opener. And of course, you know, Medvedev Uh, hasn't gotten involved in one of those, you know, particularly long five-set matches against an elite player, you know, one of the big three at a major yet. So, it's not really Medvedev's fault. It's just that he hasn't had that experience yet. Hatchinoff did, and he comported himself pretty well. So just having that small, uh, sample size to go off, you know, showed me that Hatchinoff can sustain a high level of tennis against an elite player in a big situation. And then if he makes, you know, modest enhancements to his game, he can reach that higher level. To just offer a comparison, Sakib, you know, Rublev played Nadal at the 2017 U.S. Open, and he got absolutely dismantled in the quarterfinals. Uh, there was nothing that he showed, which, you know, showed which indicated to me that he's ready to go to the next level. Now, having said that, Rublev is a couple years younger than Hatchinov is. So, of course, he will be a little bit more behind in his development. But nevertheless, going on what we have seen, uh, I think that Hatchinov has a bigger, more imposing game than Medvedev or Rublev and that he has the most upside. But, you know, to, to say that uh, what somebody shows at age 22 is definitively what uh, – that person is going to show at age 24 or 25 or for the rest of, the, of a career, that's obviously premature. But right now, at this stage, that would be my answer. So um, having answered that question, Sakov, I'd like to throw this back to you. Um, when you size up the Russian brigade and you've you know, taken stock of those three players, where does Nikolaos uh fit in? You know, he's from one of the former breakaway soviet republics the republic of georgia so you know he's if if this was the late uh, 1980s all of these players would be representing uh the soviet union uh like you know an Andrei Cherkosov or some of the other players yeah. uh, from that era so it's not as though basilashvili is in a part of the globe that's removed from uh these russian players uh how would you Compare Basilashvili to the the three Russian players that we've been talking about. Uh, I think it just illustrates the point you just
1: made because tennis is becoming a man sport, and you know, gone are the days of a young Boris Becker or a young Pete Sampras, you know, coming through, or even a young young Joachim Johansson. You know, those things seldomly happen. Uh, players hit their groove in the late or, or sorry mid to early twenties, and then they blossom into a Stan Wawrinka or you know, Amarin Chilich, you know, Kevin Anderson, and there's in, enough examples. So Nikolas Bazalashvili is in kind of in that stage right now. He's 26 years old. And to be honest, uh, Matt, you know, you and I follow our tennis. I can't speak for yourself, but I do. I, I did not have this kind of a breakthrough expectation from Bazalashvili. It's not like I was not paying attention, but I knew he had the game. He's, he's flashy ground soaps. He had a lot of power. But I also thought he has certain limitations that, you know, he either overhits and like Murder, a pointed out in a tennis with an accent, uh, article, uh, today that his sideways movement, he's not the quickest. So again, I'm not as knowledgeable as Murd, but I thought there was a ceiling on, uh, Basil Ashvili. And guess what? He wins two 500 tournaments in Hamburg on clay and now, uh, in Beijing over Juan Martin Del Potro, who had fever-like symptoms. Still, He's a, he's a big cat. He's one of the big players. And, uh, he didn't give that match to Basil Ashvili. Basil had to win it. And that was a very impressive week from Nikola because he only dropped one set uh, in winning uh, the Beijing title. So, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, it, yeah, if this was an old USSR, this would have been a powerhouse team. Of course, now Davis Cup is going to be something else, and we've talked about it. But, yeah, I, I didn't see the rise of Basilashvili. I mean, I paid attention to him. I watched a lot of his matches. But t- to be honest, he just snuck upon me. So I don't know if you saw this coming. Uh, and, and his growth and progress. And, uh, I think he's a legit, uh, top 25, if not top 20 guy next year because he definitely, you know, likes to compete. And, uh, we'll see a lot of him. And again, you know, injury is a big concern for most players. If, uh, that, if he stays healthy, I, I think we, we will see this name doing a lot of rounds in,
0: in the later stages, you know, second weeks of majors next year. I, I agree. And I, I would just add this note, Sakib, that, there are, there are several players on tour who are not in the top 10 you know and are 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 very talented but aren't quite consistent enough to get to the top 10 and who can hit the ball extremely hard but struggle with consistency and that is basically the 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 identity that Basilashvili inhabited for a number of years i mean think about like simone bolelli as a really good example. He you know, when he played Nadal at the French Open, he absolutely obliterated the tennis ball for, you know, two two and a half sets, but on like the big points, late in sets, and an important moments, you know, he'd misfire. Um, there there are there are a lot of guys who generally fit that identity on the tour. You know, their ball striking capability is immense. But consistency, uh, is their downfall. And so Basilash uh, has shown signs of beginning to overcome that limitation. You know, that he, if he harnesses his strokes and he becomes a little bit better at that very elemental skill of, you know, being able to pick your spots properly. To, you know, to know when to go for a big shot. To know when to hit that slice backhand to reset the point and bide your time. You know to know when to hit a a, a heavy topspin just to kind of gain leverage and court positioning. He, that that process of figuring out when to hit a certain kind of shot and thereby you know hit the really big ball at exactly the right time and exactly the right place. Basilashvili is making forward strides there, so that is the encouraging part for him. And 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 uh, just to reference Mert Ertunga's article at TennisAccent.com on our website. Uh, Mert thinks that Bazalashvili is capable of making the top 15 in 2019. So that that would be hmm. uh, a great achievement for him.
1: Okay, let me Americanize this conversation because I'm sure our audience is enjoying this, whoever's tuning in.
0: But we are not talking like Nadal, Djokovic,
1: or Federer, or, you know, some of the big names. So if you were to compare, you know, the players we discussed, like, say, Rank from 15 to 35, these are very good. These are world-class tennis players. But uh, just for the American audience, suppose using NBA as a backdrop, uh, what would a really be in the NBA compared to what kind of stars will will he be an All Star? What would be a Medvedev compared to you know the NBA scenario? Just uh, I know it's kind of random, but you know these are still great players. We're not talking maybe LeBron caliber or the top five caliber, you know, but 15 to 35 in tennis is pretty. It's a pretty you know uh, high talented breed of tennis players.
0: Well, it, it, that's an interesting point, and uh, I haven't really I, – I would, I would be lying to you if I told you that I have thought a lot about that kind of parallel. But, you know, having f- covered a lot of sports and followed a lot of sports, I, I do have uh, a few very clear observations to make. And one is that uh, being, the, like, let's say, the 25th best tennis player in the world – uh, it, you certainly make a heck of a lot of money from it. So so from that standpoint, you're not really shortchanged. But in terms of global recognition and celebrity, you're definitely shortchanged. You know, if you are the 25th best player in the NBA, uh, that either means that you are the, the best player on one of the uh, 30 teams in the league, or you're a strong number two player on, on, on a team if you have oh, to be paired with another yeah with another superstar so yeah and 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 if you you well, if you make the all-star game you're it's you're pretty much at the end of the bench uh on the cut line um you're certainly not an all-star starter you're certainly not one of the uh two or three foremost reserves who comes off the bench uh so you know if 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 you are a the 25th best tennis player you 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 really miss out on the fame you don't not the money but you do miss out on the fame and and the way history remembers you, um, you know, if you are the star on an NBA team, you know, in a in a specific city, uh, you know, you get the kind of recognition that as a globe-trotting tennis player who makes the fourth round at a bunch of tournaments, uh, you don't come close to receiving. So that, that's that's an interesting prism. So a, a guy like Basilashvili, to me, in terms of like the the uh, the kind of role that he would have or the kind of identity he would have in the NBA, um, you can kind of split that one two ways, Saka. If if you're looking strictly at the ranking, you know, he's a top 30-ish player, you know, that means that maybe he'd be the star player on the Orlando Magic. Uh, Hmm. But uh, in terms of, you know, how um, prominent he is in his sport and also in terms of the way he plays, you know, very aggressive, uh, you know, in very intense bursts, uh, his role, uh, if likened to an NBA team, might be, you know, a sixth man coming off the bench for instant offense. And that that's that's a comparison strictly in terms of his playing style. So there are a number of ways in which you can compare uh, the identity of someone like Nikolas Bazalashvili to an NBA situation. Ranking is one way, playing style is another, and you could probably imagine uh, other uh, templates uh, in which he could fit.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay, let me ask you one more thing then. Again, this, this, I'm enjoying this conversation. This is not scripted. You
1: know, not not that me and Matt, you know, script a proper show, but we have talking points, but this is going in a very uh, enjoyable route, even for me. So Nick Kyrgios, you know, we've talked a lot about him. He's going to be ranked somewhere in the 40s now. So what is a parallel for him in the NBA? I mean, so much talent, but really not showing enough desire, enough, uh, you know, he, I know he's injured a lot of times. Well, where does he fall in? He's a, he's a star, but he's not a star? Or how do you make that connection?
0: Well, you know, it's, it is, a, you know, yeah, and I want to tell our listeners, no, we did not prepare for this conversation, um, and that's fine, you know, because sometimes you need to be unscripted on radio, and this is good. So I am surprised, Saib, that I that a name immediately came to mind when you asked me this question. Uh, that, that player, the, uh, if, if Nick Terios was an NBA player, he'd be JaVale McGee. Uh, and, and so to, uh, flesh out that comparison just a little bit, McGee, and I mean, he's gone to a new team. He's, he's with the Los Angeles Lakers this season, but last year he was with the Golden State Warriors. And he was a guy who would not play long minutes, and he did not play very much in the playoffs at all because his defense just wasn't good enough uh, against the Houston Rockets and the Warriors played in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, but but McGee was good for 10 to 12 really high-energy minutes per game. And when defenses would focus on Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Clay Thompson on the perimeter, uh, they would overextend, and that would free up McGee for dunks on lob passes because the defense was out on the perimeter, so McGee would get free. And, you know, he he would... Cram, you know, several dunks, uh, and into 10 or 12 minutes. He'd score 8 points. You know, he would provide a quick jolt of offense. That is exactly, uh, the comparison for Nick Kyrios. You know, very quick, all offense, very little defense, not a lot of stamina, you know, not, ex- not someone who craves extended playing time or extended competitions. Um, you know, he's not useful in the best of 5 set format. But in very short bursts, uh, and as shown at the Labor Cup, for instance, uh, especially the 2017 Labor Cup last year, you know, in short bursts, Kyrios is immensely entertaining and also productive. But if you get him into uh, long form playing formats or playing situations, he's not much good at all. So, Mm Javail McGee really is the perfect comparison for Nick Kyrios as an NBA player.
1: Okay, you may laugh at me. Again, I'm going, you know, a decade back. But no, I like this. Talent, I like this. No, no, but purely on talent, uh, I I always compare Kyrios to the Wallace. But again, Wallace was a champion with Detroit Pistons and a perennial All Star. But just purely on talent and ability and how you know things would take him off, I you know, in my mind, it's a crazy parallel. But I think Kyrios well, goes on and achieves maybe some great things. To me, he's the Wallace of the NBA. <laughs> well,
0: well, you know, you know, that's that's a per- that's a reasonable comparison. It's just that. And, you know, having made that the uh, Bazalashvili comparison earlier, you know, one comparison was based on ranking. One p- comparison was based on playing style. It's similar with Kyrgios Sakib that, you know, in terms of offense versus defense, the comparison doesn't work at all because Rashid Wallace buttered his bread at the defensive end of the floor. But if you view them through the lens of personalities and how volcanic they were, how often they'd erupt, uh how little tolerance they had for uh opponents or coaches or referees, then that's a perfect comparison. So there's a lot there's a lot to be said for that comparison just as long as you make the comparison in a specific way. And and as a side note to our listeners, I, I as a someone who has written about sports for pay uh since two thousand one, so I've been doing this for a long time. People, readers often get on me for saying, how can you make that comparison? And I just wanted to emphasize, making a comparison is not necessarily the problem with a lot of sports writers or sports commentators. What always matters in a comparison is how you make the comparison or what you base the comparison on. So yes, player A here and player B there Might be very different in six or seven different ways, but if you're comparing them in an eighth or ninth way, and it fits, then the comparison's right. So, similar with the Kyrios and Rashid Wallace. Very different on a number of very specific levels, but if you route the comparison and you base the comparison, uh, on, you know, their personality, their attention span, uh, their tolerance for authority, uh, it's a, it is an absolutely perfect comparison. Alright, so this
1: was again, you know, uh, a direction that, you know, I just wanted to, uh, drive this conversation to. But let's come back to, uh, the actual tennis part of it. And since we've talked a lot of international players, uh, I know America has, I think, 12 players in the top 100 right now, 12 men players, and some of them are veterans like Isner, Query, and even now Jack Sox is not a youngster anymore, and he won't be in the top 100, so we don't have to worry about his name. But, uh, since we talked about the Russians, uh, uh, what do you think of Tiafoe and Co. and who else is there? I know there was Escobedo for a while. Uh, Taylor Fitz is making some inroads. Uh, how is the American landscape looking for for the you know, next gen American tennis players?
0: Well, Francis Tiafo, uh has obviously made a splash. You know, he's 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 won a number of high profile matches, uh, gone deep into a few of the uh, ATP. Yeah, gone, gone deep into a few of the ATP 250 tournaments. So, um, you know, he has registered some notable achievements this year. Uh, I, I think that he has achieved at a level that he should feel good about. Uh, and he also had that Davis Cup experience against Borna Choric in Croatia. That could be a real growth point for him in his career. So there are lots of reasons for him to feel encouraged. Now, that having been said, when I compare TFO to, you know, similarly aged peers in other countries on the ATP tour, that's where uh, I become more concerned. Uh, His forehand is not an – beyond being inelegant, I mean, it's one thing to be inelegant, but there are really weaknesses in that shot. It is not an efficient shot. Uh, it, It is not a powerful shot. Uh, It it is a ground stroke which, you know, has flawed technique and can be and will be exposed if he doesn't improve that in 2019. So while I see definite forward strides and and while TFO is definitely a work in progress, hardly someone whose identity is, you know, complete, you know, his story has not been written. It is only beginning to, to unfold. Nevertheless, that forehand is such a huge concern for me in terms of his ability to become, uh, let's say, a you know a, a steady quarterfinal, semifinal level player at important tournaments. That is something that he and his team really need to shore up going into the off season.
1: Any other guys that you think will you know join this conversation too? I know they're all very young. Riley Opelka made a splash. Uh, now we we don't see his name in the main draws. Tommy Paul is kind of uh, I think still in the challenger. Circuit, uh, Escobedo has a great work ethic we hear, but again, uh, was injured for a while and again playing in the minor leagues. Uh, who, who, who's the next guy you're looking forward? To? Who, who's going to give Tiapo well, company, uh,
0: maybe in the well, top you know, tier to of the rankings? You know, Taylor Fritz has the absolute mammoth serve and, uh, he, uh, he gave Sasha Zverev problems at Wimbledon for at least for a period of time earlier this year. So with that serve, you know, he has, a foundation, but you know, and and, and you've talked about this with a uh, New Englander, Tim Mayotte, among others. You know, you've talked with Tim Mayotte and uh, about the American coaching system and the process of developing American players. And far too many of them are just a serve and a forehand and very little else. You know, in terms of backhand technique, in terms of uh, how they rotate through their ground strokes emphasis on court coverage, uh, being capable at the net and being able to to play all court points. You know, Americans generally at this stage uh, in the evolution of the ATP Tour are really under-equipped relative to most of their peers in Europe, Australia, uh, and South America. So, So Fritz has that hammer with the serve, uh, but he just needs to build the rest of his game around it. And, you know, is, is he on track for that? You know, I don't think we're seeing a whole lot from him. Uh, he had a decent result in Shanghai, uh, lost narrowly to Sam Query, who, who ironically is another serve and forehand guy, uh, who, uh, you know, he's gotten better, but Query really had a disappointing 2018 after his very strong 2017. So, uh, Fritz, Fritz probably is the other particularly prominent American youngster uh, with a chance to do something good, but uh, he, he has a lot of work to do.
1: Yeah, I think uh, fair enough. That's what, like you said, Tim Mayard mentioned when he was here, like uh, Tiafoe and some of these uh, American guys have either one or the two strokes uh, technically compromised, and that, that that is huge for making inroads towards, you know, the top rankings of, of the game. Uh so yeah, on on that note, is there anyone else in the Asian string, uh Matt, that stands out or at least has shown promise that uh he's on the verge of uh you know uh greater things are breaking out because I know last year uh we talked about uh Yun Chung and uh Andre Rublev and uh some of the other players and of course sixty passes there. So I think it's a cycle. Uh for the first two years a player does make an impression in the second year either the tour gets you know, catches up by playing style and uh, is there anyone else who's joining this conversation? I know we've uh, talked Sitsipas a lot on this forum. Uh, is there any other name that you want to
0: bring bring to the table? Not really. I think that Bazalashvili and Medvedev are the two players who have really increased their stock. Um, you know, in terms of other stories, I really don't think they exist. I think Sitsipas has run out of gas, which you know is a very normal reality for a 20-year-old player who's played a long season. Yeah, so that's that's not a verdict on his tennis in any way, shape or form. He's just tired, and that's going to that's going to happen. That happened last year with Sasha Zverev. He also ran out of steam in October and early November. Um, you know, Borna Coric has done some good things. He's uh, you know, advanced in a few rounds in Shanghai as we're recording this podcast, but um, you know He beat Juan Martin Del Potro because Del had a knee problem and was carrying around uh, the, the illness that he uh, developed when in Tokyo. So we can't really say too much about Chorich uh, at this point. So there's, there's really nothing else to add beyond uh, Bazalashvili and Medvedev, in my opinion.
1: Okay, and I would like to add just, you know, the top players. Uh, we're not discussing many top players now, but Marin Cilic, he's in a minor slump since uh, winning that uh night match of the US open against Tim he lost to Nishikori, then lost to Sam Query and Clay at home in Davis Cup and then has top uh two opening matches in Asia to Nicolas Jarry, and then I don't know who he lost to uh the week before in Tokyo but yeah that's uh, uh somewhat you know, maybe he needs to snap this or what's going on in his head because uh losing these kind of close matches I I believe even as a top notch guy Till it is it weighs heavily on your side, here. Yeah, next time you are in that situation, not that he hasn't done it before, but I think he's in that mini slump. And uh, do you expect him to turn this around, uh, say, uh, in Basel or maybe bash I,
0: I think that Chilich is mentally roasted and toasted for the rest of 2018. Uh, I, I personally think that after he lost that suspended, uh, you know, and you know, delayed Wimbledon match to Guido Pella uh the match that uh you know he led early and then uh the, the match was suspended. It wasn't played uh under the roof, you know, to finish the second round and then it was resumed the next day and Pella uh largely controlled play. That that was the moment when the season went off the rails for Chilich because if you remember, um Chilich played his best match of the year better than the Australian Open Final against Better. That was a that was a close match, and it was a match in which um, Chilich played really, really well in the sets that he won, but he did not play well at all in the sets that he lost. Chilich's best match of 2018 was right before Wimbledon at Queen's Club, when he beat Djokovic in an excellent three-set final. Um, he, you know, Chilich looked like a guy who was ready to make the Wimbledon final again, at least make a very deep run. And when Pella knocked him off, that seemed to totally dismantle, uh, the course of, of Chilich's season. So, he really has been in a funk for a few months now, uh, and, and when, when, you're, you're in a funk that long, uh, it, it's really hard to reset the dial. And I think Chilich is, is certainly showing the sun, socket of a man who wants 2018 to be over. If if he rebounds, I think that the Australian Open is where he's going to pick things back up.
1: Yeah, I believe he also had a very similar end to last year. He lost, I believe, all three matches at the World Tour Finals, and coming in, he was on some sort of a losing spree. So let let's keep track on what he does in the next few weeks. But yeah, I think you're do you're making you onto something that uh, Wimbledon uh, match probably was the undoing. Even though I think he had a great tournament in Cincinnati, lost a very close affair to Djokovic. And he had a great match against Diminor at U.S. Open, but you're right. Maybe the Pella match is something that has, you know, carried over for the remainder of the season. So on that note, Matt, uh, let's talk about the WTA side of things. Uh, we've already covered more than half of the show for today, but let's talk some of the stories of the women's side in this Asian swing. Uh, Sabalenka is one name that has just, you know, been everywhere, and uh, she packs a punch. I and she, you know, won a tournament in New Haven, had a great U.S. Open in, you know, in hot conditions, and she just keeps doing this. Uh, it's beyond the point that she's for real. But is this sustainable? Do you think she needs a break or
0: uh, she's just getting started? And, and the thing is that with the off season, you know, she's not going to qualify for the uh, WTA finals. So that will give her, you know, a few months to to cool down and, and, and reset. Um, you know the the fact that Sabalenka has played so much tennis this year you know she leads the w t a tour uh in terms of uh the number of three set wins. I believe the total is nineteen it might be twenty um so she's 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 won a lot of long matches and she's won just a lot of matches in general uh the fact that she uh, acquired that really massive workload, especially beginning in the summer with Montreal, then Cincinnati, then New Haven, then the U.S. Open. You know, she just kept playing and kept winning and kept uh, imposing her game on, on opponents. You know, that was really impressive. And then after the U.S. Open, you know, a lot of players on the WTA Tour, they don't shut down mentally, but it's just it's hard for them to pick it back, to pick back up the intensity when they fly to Asia a few weeks later for Wuhan uh, and then Beijing, that those two tournaments played back-to-back in China, Sabalenka didn't have a problem doing that. You know, she won in Wuhan and made a decent run the very next week in Beijing. Um, what what strikes me about Sabalenka Sakev is that, you know, she has packed so much tennis into the last two months. When she gets to the majors next year, you know, when she will have not have played too much tennis heading in. So the Australian Open really will be the first test case here. She will not have played a lot of tennis in the two weeks preceding the 2019 Australian Open. So she should be relatively fresh. Uh, it, it, it is going to be hard to bet against her. Um, just given that, uh, she has shown that she can sustain form not only over one week, or even two weeks, but over eight weeks. Uh, now you could have a dynamic where, you know, the rest of the tour spends November and December in the off season, you know, reading the scouting report on her. And so she'll get pushed back, but, uh, her talent is so natural and her ball striking is so fluid, uh, that she might still be able to do the things that her opponents, uh, don't want her to do and that opponents can't prevent her from doing. So, uh, Sabalenka at the Australian Open, based on her showings in Wuhan and Beijing, uh, is gonna be a, a top story right there on the same plane with Serena Williams. She's gonna be that big of a focus heading in.
1: No, I think you're making, I think, uh, definitely a lot of sense there, and, uh, people who haven't followed Sabalenka should definitely add this name on their tennis list. And, uh, I just like to add what, to what Matt said. Not only she's playing aggressive, you know, uh, tennis, she's a big ball striker, but she's also a fighter, and you know a lot of time in the youthfulness has this element of uh, no fear. She's turned a lot of these matches around where she was down a set or you know trailing in the scoreboard, and she kept playing that aggressive brand of tennis and got the better of her opponent. So definitely uh, a name for the future. Actually, future is now. She she looks like the real deal, and yeah, let's uh, let's see what she brings to uh, the first major in 2019. Uh, when we're talking about the first major, uh, it was uh, seemed like you know not too long ago Caroline Wozniacki finally got over the hump, and throughout the year she had you know
0: her ups and downs. After that, but she did have a pretty good Asian swing, man, didn't she? Absolutely. And you know the, the the main thing to remember with Wozniacki is that ever since Wimbledon, she has been injured. Uh, from from Wimbledon through the U.S. Open, she was battling injuries. Her her legs were. Often wrapped. Uh, interestingly enough, she lost to Sabalenka in Montreal, uh, and, and that was a day when when you know she was not in very good physical condition. If you also recall, Sakib, those those tournaments uh, in Canada, Montreal and Toronto, were both delayed a lot by rain, and so Wozniacki had to do a lot of waiting, uh, which really you know did not which added to her discomfort. So her body got in the way uh, during most of the second half of the summer, uh, but she finally looked like a healthy player in China, and so just her patience and perseverance, which are two of her defining positive characteristics, were handsomely rewarded. You know, Wozniacki throughout her career has been the player who will make you hit an extra ball. You know, she'll run down the extra shot, uh, she simply does not concede points, um, so she needed to be able to run fully uh, in order to play the kind of tennis that she needs to play. And so, finally, with a measure of health, she was able to win the year's last Premier Mandatory tournament. And so, even though Wozniacki has not been uh, a steady factor over the course of the whole season, you know, in the clay spring and the grass season, and the and the hard court summer, she really wasn't much of a factor, but after her Australian Open Championship in January, and now after this premier mandatory title in the fall, you know, she has two of the biggest trophies in women's tennis in 2018, and if she wins the WTA Finals, well, it's going to be hard to ha- match a, a set of three championships as big as the ones that she will have, so... She has a lot to play for uh at the WTA Finals and she will really be able to make a case that she's the player of the year if she wins that tournament. So um for a player who was really off the radar comparatively speaking from in June, July, August, and early September, uh, you know, she still had a phenomenal year and and it's because of that patience in the face of the injuries, which are, you know, an athlete's worst enemy.
1: And that's the beauty of tennis, isn't it? You know, within a season there's like, you know, so many uh, momentum swings, so many surface changes, and so many, you know, swings like in Asia, the North America swing, European swing, and, you know, someone who's left for dead just comes back and pretty much unannounced and, you know, back in the conversation, and that's what Caroline Wozniacki did. Uh, Matt, again, a very random question just comes to mind uh, before we start talking, you know, NBA, because we don't have much time left for the episode. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh You know, women also play on the same surfaces, and, you know, a lot of these tournaments are like uh, – court tournaments now, but uh, especially from the Twitter and, and the tennis fans point of view, the slowness and the fastness of the coach, I think that's more of a cry from the fans of the men's side. You seldom hear the WTA fans, uh, you know, arguing about surfaces or this code was sped up to help that player or this code was slowed down, high bounce for that player, uh, or, or am I, am I not correct here because I don't see the same arguments on the WTA side,
0: at least from the fans uh, you know I, it, it, it emerges at times but in terms of the volume and the constancy not at all it's not even close that yeah it's it's much more of a men's tennis argument at least when filtered through the prism of social media a- absolutely
1: I right, think so we've covered quite a lot in tennis and let's uh, do a quick switch because the NBA season is not too far away and we did promise on this forum that we'll be talking about a basketball, which we did in the beginning. So, Matt, let me put you on the spot right now because you are the NBA guru right here. So, uh, again, uh, since free agency and now the teams have rosters, they actually are into preseason mode. So, if you were to break down three or four exciting teams, or the top teams in the Eastern Conference, uh, who are those teams, and you know what changed from last season for them?
0: Well, I think that the most interesting question to me in the Eastern Conference for this upcoming season is, are the Toronto Raptors going to join the Boston Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers at the top of the conference, or are they going to be really in the second tier with the Milwaukee Bucks and maybe the Indiana Pacers? I I think Toronto is the most mysterious team in the East for two basic reasons, Sakib. One is we don't know what kind of player Kawhi Leonard is going to be. Uh, you know, if, if, if Kawhi is his very best self, then Toronto will probably join that top tier with the Sixers and the Celtics. But given all the injuries he's been through and given all of the mysterious doings uh, with the San Antonio Spurs and the prickly relationship that emerged with Greg Popovich and the Spurs management last season uh you know the sh- putting a shroud over over the 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 San Antonio Spurs mystique you know if 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 Kawhi is not appreciably close to what he once was then then that takes all the air out of the Raptors balloon so to me that is the the central uh source of intrigue in the Eastern Conference i think that when you evaluate the teams the top teams on the merits it is mm. really hard to ignore That Brad Stevens is the best coach in the the Eastern Conference and very possibly the whole NBA. Uh, What he got out of that team. Uh,
1: Hang on, Matt. So, sure. uh, Just going back to your point on Leonard. So, just you know, educate me here uh, because I've heard a lot about Leonard, and he did have a great season with the Spurs not too long ago. So, fully healthy Leonard in full flight. Is he a
0: top five player still? Oh, fully healthy and in full flight. There's no question. He's a top three player. You know, he. It, here's here's a, a key point to realize about um, Kawhi Leonard in comparison to LeBron James. LeBron is at a point in his career, or at least he was the past few seasons with the Cavs, where he had to manage his body so that he was going to be fresh for the playoffs and fresh for that particular grind. It, it was not in LeBron's best interest to play all out, you know, in the middle of a Christmas road trip, uh, on the West Coast, it just, it just, it just didn't matter whether, whether Cleveland won 60 games or 55 or 50. What mattered was LeBron being fresh. Now last season he had to play more because without Kyrie Irving, you know, he had, he had to do more by himself. But in the previous season, you know, he took a lot of games off. Uh, and so w- when you have to, uh, You know, guide yourself carefully through the regular season so that you're fresh for the playoffs. You're not going to be your best self at the defensive end of the floor. You just, you can't play with full tilt intensity for all 82 games. So the instructive comparison to make with Kawhi is that Kawhi is young enough still at this stage in his career where when healthy, he can give Every last ounce of energy on defense, and that is what puts him right up there with LeBron. You know, he's not. He, no one would say that he's a better offensive player than LeBron is. Um, but hey, I think if he can, you, if he can go all out on defense, that really puts him into the very, very top tier of NBA players, assuming he's healthy.
1: Okay. Before you speak on the Celtics, I think you spoke on something very interesting there about LeBron. How? you know, he has to, you know, uh, not literally take nights off, but, you know, he can't be a full flight uh, all 82 games because he has to carry a team. Now let's bring tennis back into it. So LeBron and Federer, I think, you know, uh, in terms of longevity, uh, can LeBron do something like Federer is doing in terms of scheduling? I know it's a team game, but uh, can he literally take uh, nights off or just, you know, play a lesser
0: schedule to be more effective? Has he already been doing that, or uh, what's your take on that comparison? Well, as I, as I briefly alluded to in, in uh, my comments about LeBron a, a few moments ago, that two seasons ago, when he still had Kyrie Irving with him on the Cavs, so that was the 2016-2017 NBA season, you know, he didn't have to do all the scoring himself, so he, he did not play uh, a fair number of games, and he really coasted through the regular season. Last season with Cleveland, without Kyrie, was very different. He really had to shoulder the load. He had to be there on the court, uh, to, to get the team, you know, to a reasonable, uh, point, uh, before and then during the playoffs. So it was much more of a strain, uh, last season. So now I know we're talking about the East, but you know, in terms of, just in terms of LeBron with the Lakers, you know, he has to have, uh, a, enough of a supporting cast that can perform the various functions on the court so that he doesn't have to play 35, 40 minutes a night during the regular season. You know, LeBron, if he's in an ideal situation, you know, will be able to have some nights when uh, he can play just 25 minutes. You know, one thing the NBA has done, Sakib, in recent seasons is to severely reduce the number of back-to-backs, you know, playing games on back-to-back nights, and related to that, playing four games in five nights, the NBA has greatly reduced those kinds of burdensome stretches on the schedule. That's why you know the season is starting in mid-October now instead of the end of October. It's, it's stretching out the calendar precisely so that players don't have to play games on back-to-back nights because that's the, exactly the kind of situation in which someone like LeBron would take one of those two nights off so that he'd be fresher for the other night uh presumably against the tougher team. So, in terms of LeBron's longevity, it depends on the quality of of his supporting cast and uh that you know that's really more of a question we need to tackle on a separate radio show when, when we talk about the Western Conference, but that's kind of the short answer right there.
1: Okay, so we have only a few minutes left in today's uh show. So, let's talk about the local team Boston Celtics. Uh with a fully healthy Gordon Hayward, uh, how good this club can be?
0: Yeah, so when uh, you uh, asked me about LeBron and, and Kawhi, you know, I was just beginning to say that, you know, Brad Stevens has clearly established himself as the best coach in the Eastern Conference, if not the NBA. He's certain, you know, he's certainly the best in the East. Uh, we saw him take apart Brett Brown and the Philadelphia 76ers in the playoffs last year. Um, it will be interesting to see if the Celtics play the Bucks again. Um now the Bucks have a really good coach, Mike Budenholzer, coming over from the Atlanta Hawks and Budenholzer made the Eastern Conference Finals in 2015. Uh but nevertheless, Stevens is the master uh, chess player in the Eastern Conference and now that's going to give the Celtics an edge it come playoff time. So it's really hard to see how Boston won't be in the Eastern Conference Finals assuming that Hayward and also Kyrie Irving Uh, can remain healthy, but the thing, you know, the thing to emphasize with the Celtics, uh, you know, this is the age of interchangeable positional basketball. You know, it's not the age where you had a classic big man and a classic power forward and the, the spots one through five on the court, uh, were, you know, easy, easily distributed and didn't really change very much. Today that's, that has been completely obliterated where you have smaller guys playing center. Uh, you, you have various height and length combinations on the court. And so the Celtics have a lot of interchangeable medium sized players who can take on multiple defensive assignments. You know, like Marcus Smart is the Celtics answer to what Draymond Green is for the Golden State Warriors. So you, when you have these interchangeable parts and then you put them in the hands of a master chess player, such as Brad Stevens, that is what's going to give the Celtics so many advantages, not just over the course of the regular season, but especially when you get into the playoffs when those matchups on the court matter so much. So, uh, you know, the Sixers the, the should be better. You know, give another year to Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and all those young horses over there they are going to be better, but we saw Stevens, you know, move the chess pieces so well against the Sixers last year you give them a healthy Kyrie, you give them a healthy Hayward, I I I find it hard to see how the outcome is going to be different if the Celtics and the Sixers go at it in the Eastern Conference Finals.
1: Hi, hey, man. I think on that note, we covered a lot this episode, and thanks for doing this. And for next week, we'll be breaking down the Western Conference uh, uh, power teams. And, of course, we'll be talking, you know, Shanghai – What happened in the tennis world And we will be talking India versus West Indies cricket So there will be a full pack show next week And thanks for listening everyone And we'll be back in a week's time